The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Our reading today is from Exodus 12. Uh, It's a little bit longer, so normally we would have you stand for the reading of God's Word. Um, You can go ahead and remain seated for this one because it gets a little bit long. So we are going to start in verse 33, and we're going to run through about halfway through chapter 13. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is brought for, excuse me, that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of, today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory." 
You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, you shall give, he shall give it to you. You shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand, or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. It's the word of the Lord. morning. Let's pray. Our good God, we see your fingerprints all over our lives. Even the fact that we're here today and gathered with your people is a sign of your goodness to us. We thank you for all your provisions in our lives, the things we need, the things we need and we don't always want. You give them to us also. And we thank you for the women's retreat that happened this weekend. I pray that many new friendships will have emerged from that and that uh, lessons learned and realizations discovered will continue and, um, and what you've started there would flourish, Lord, in each of these women's lives. God, I pray for our community as a whole. Um, I pray for joy and peace and contentment. Lord, I pray that you would meet us where we're at in our struggles with sin, in our struggles with despair. Lord, those who aren't with us here this morning today, for whatever reason, we ask that they would know your mercy in their lives this morning, that they would have a fresh reminder, wherever they are, whatever they're doing, uh, that they would know that you are with them. I think of Nancy Formasano in the nursing home. Lord, we ask that she would know your comfort at this time and that she would see your good news clearly in the midst of um, her travail. And Lord, I, I pray for us this morning as we hear this word, these words from 3,500 years ago, they can at first glance seem intimidating or a little out of touch with our present situation, but um, Lord, we know that that's not the reality at all. Your word, all of it, is deeply relevant and cutting to our lives when applied by your Holy Spirit. So we ask that you would do that good work right now, that you would open these words for us, that you would show us Christ here, 
and that we would be changed and we would worship. We ask it in his name. Amen. You know, we humans aren't always very good at remembering. And that's why we make special days of remembrance, like Memorial Day that we just had. Although even then, I don't think we're very good at remembering because uh, a lot of people just think it's for remembering to open your pool and get your grill fired up for the summer. In Britain, I think they do a pretty good job of remembering with Guy Fawkes Day. Are you guys familiar with this tradition? Remember, remember the 5th of November? Because on that day in 1605, a fiend named Guy Fawkes was arrested just as he was prepared to set off a massive explosion of gunpowder under the House of Lords, where the king was in attendance to open parliament that day. And so every year on the 5th of November, an effigy of Guy Fawkes is burned on British bonfires and they just have a party and set off fireworks. But sometimes our times of remembrance are are more sentimental, times of reflection. I think of how sometimes people who've had cancer in the past will every year observe the day when they were first declared to be in remission. So there's a lot of different ways to remember, and today we're going to consider something even more special than these observances I've mentioned. Instead of politics or medical treatment, we're going to think about a remembrance, a celebration that actually works to keep us free from spiritual tyranny and from the cancer of sin. It doesn't just celebrate a slice of our lives in this world, but it revisits and it lives out the reality that redefines our whole existence forever. We're going to see that God keeps saving his people in part through the gift of remembrance. The gift of remembrance. Let's start by remembering in our first verses just why this day was worth celebrating for the ancient Israelites. In verses 33 to 41, after all the plagues in Egypt, after all the trauma of Passover night, we see that the Israelites are out and they're enjoying their new status, free, departed from the land of slavery. And they weren't just begrudgingly released, they were sent away in haste from their captors. The Egyptians couldn't bear the thought of any further blow from Israel's God. And we're also told that they had plundered the Egyptians, like a victorious army taking spoils. And they did it simply by just asking their neighbors for silver and gold and clothing, just like God had instructed Moses to tell them to do. And throughout church history, interpreters have seen this this, um, plundering of the Egyptians as a picture of how God often provides for his people through providentially causing their enemies' riches to play into his purposes. Sometimes it's material wealth, sometimes it's knowledge or, or just favor of different types. See, the powers of darkness in this world seek to exploit God's people, just like Pharaoh did the Israelites in Egypt. But inevitably, in the long run, they actually end up funding and resourcing what God seeks to accomplish. Maybe you've seen glimpses of that in your own experiences. I always think about how um, the founding father, Benjamin Franklin, Right, totally godless dude, um, no interest in the faith, and yet for some reason, he funded the publication and distribution of George Whitfield's evangelistic sermons all across the American colonies. It's one of those mysteries of history. Why did he do that? 
Or within the Bible itself, we could look at um, in the book of Ezra, Persian kings, Cyrus, Darius, they gave decrees that ample resources would be given to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And uh, that's actually quite similar to what we see here. This is a, a bit of a spoiler alert. Um, the vast majority of these resources that were taken from the Egyptians by the end of Exodus, they're going to be given freely by the people for the construction of the tabernacle. So the people are free. They've plundered the Egyptians, and we're told in verse 38 that a mixed multitude went up with them. A mixed multitude. That shouldn't surprise us because fairly on in the plague cycle, we saw that the, uh, the court magicians, Pharaoh's you know, key men, they were like, whoa, this is the finger of God. So they saw it, and then when the plague of hail came along, we're told that Pharaoh's servants who feared Yahweh brought their servants and their livestock in to protect them from the plague that was coming. So there was this growing awareness of, wait a minute, this God is for real. In chapter 11, verse 3, we're told that the man Moses was very great in the sight of the people of Egypt. So it wouldn't surprise us if a number of Egyptians or even other immigrant peoples had clamored to join themselves to Israel. They wanted to be part of a people who were led and protected by a God like this. Uh, In the 1956 movie, The Ten Commandments, Chandra, shout out, her favorite. Um, There's this scene where Moses' royal adoptive mother just slips into the Passover house to be part of it, to be protected along with the Hebrews. Now, what did that happen or not? I don't know. It might be a little bit Hollywood, but it, it captures the idea that this is a mixed multitude. And uh, it shows us that even here, towards the very beginning of the Old Testament, ethnic Israel is an increasingly composite people. They were always intended to be a conduit through which Yahweh would make himself known to all nations. So the plagues of Egypt, they weren't only judgment for many the plagues were mercy that clearly showed them the way of life. Now, you'll see in verses 34 and 39 that a lot of emphasis is placed on the fact that as they went out, they took their dough before it was leavened, and we're going to see the significance of that later. We read that there were 600,000 men that might indicate a total group of as many as 3 million, and they probably went about 15 miles the first day. But if you think about it, that was further than they'd ever traveled their whole lives for generations. Can you imagine the joy, the wonder that would have accompanied them on that first day of travel? For those of you who are in Christ, I think you can imagine it, right? And we are meant to think about our freedom in Christ here. It's emphasized twice. There were 430 years of waiting in Egypt. And I don't think it's accidental that before Jesus, the people of God were waiting for the Messiah without a word from the time when the the last book of the Old Testament was written around 430 B.C. But then, after 430 years, our Deliverer did come. And those of us who are found in him through faith, we know what it means to be led out of slavery with great celebration. We can remember times of excitement Our freedom in Christ just felt so palpable. Maybe you're even in a time like that right now. I hope you are. 
But for others of us, maybe that excitement has faded a bit over time. You know, in the book of Numbers, it says that the Israelites on that day went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians. But the question is, would that sense of triumph continue? What about when the journey was prolonged? What about when hard trials came along? God knew that they would. God saw the future struggle to maintain the faith, to persevere in the faith. He saw that struggle ahead of the people even more clearly than they did even more clearly than we see it for ourselves. And so he gave them instructions about how they should remember their salvation. And we're introduced to that need for remembrance through the transition in verse 42. It says, It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. So the idea is that the same care that was exercised by God in protecting and preserving, delivering his people, that care now warrants intentional care by his people to make sure that they're appropriately honoring him with their lives. So in last week's passage, we saw that even in preparation for the 10th plague, God had told them that these events were going to lead to a day of memorial to sacred assemblies in the future. There was going to be observances linked to the things that were about to happen. And now we're going to get more details about those observances. Uh, A quick note before we get into the details. You know, at this church we make a big deal about remembering the gospel. Have you seen that? I hope you've seen that if you've been around for very long. We want to remember the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And uh, the website for Acts 29, which is our, our church planning network, puts it this way. It says, This gospel is the foundation for our confidence in the ultimate triumph of God's kingdom and the consummation of his purpose for all creation. This gospel is not only the means by which people are saved, but also the truth and power by which people are sanctified. It is the truth of the gospel that enables us to genuinely and joyfully do what is pleasing to God and to grow in progressive conformity to the image of Christ. So in other words, remembering the gospel is quite simply how the Christian life is done. And as I said last week, Exodus is the gospel according to Moses. Christ is concealed here within this narrative. And so just as scripture exhorts us as new covenant believers to be gospel-centered in all of our thinking and all of our belief and action, so also the old covenant believers, right up through the time of Jesus, they would always be exodus-centered. They were to remember these events. They were to understand their own times and struggles through the interpretive lens of what God had done at the exodus. And that's why you can hear echoes and see meditations on the events of the Exodus really throughout every part of the Old Testament. And those thoughts, those habits of Exodus centrality are started right here in chapter 12 and 13 as three specific remembrances are outlined for us. So let's look at them one by one. First, we've got Passover. The Passover feast was to commemorate their liberation from death, their protection from the destruction that they they rightfully should have had They should have been killed that night because of the evil of sins committed. They were no different from the Egyptians. But of course, the the commemoration of Passover, so in subsequent years, the instructions that are being given here, 
it wasn't a repetition of Passover, right? We see that. The Passover only happened once in Egypt. But then they were told to commemorate it. Just like Jesus died for sinners only once. And yet we're told to commemorate it. The original Passover was commemorated every 15th of Abib, which corresponds to Easter, roughly, most years, sometime in March and April. And we're going to review some of last week's texts about the Passover to just remember some of the details of that celebration and see how it links to the reality in Christ. So we read last week that the lamb was to be a male, to be without blemish, a year old, which means in the prime of his life. The lamb was to be roasted, not boiled. So no bones were to be broken. That was emphasized. And the New Testament points us to Jesus, calling him the lamb of God, a male without moral fault in the prime of his life. And John 19 goes out of its way to mention that not one of Jesus' bones were broken, even though those executed around him had their legs broken to speed up the process of death before the high Sabbath. And uh, the Passover instructions at the start of chapter 12 um, were to choose the lamb four days before the sacrifice. What that would do is allow the family to really identify with this lamb. And they're told that they need to eat the Passover lamb with bitter herbs. That was likely meant to invoke the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. And great care was taken to not misuse the Passover lamb. It's very specific. It can't leave the house. It has to, there has to be roughly you know, the right amount of people per house to partake of this lamb. And the animal was to be consumed as completely as possible, and the rest was to be burned. So the sole purpose and use of this lamb was to provide Passover cover, Passover nourishment for the people whose number and needs it matched. And then once that was achieved, it wasn't available for anything or anyone else. And don't we see parallels with Christ in all of that? That only those who identify with him will benefit from his sacrifice. And those benefiting will see the bitterness of their need. And there is no option for humanity to benefit from Christ if they will not feast on him in faith for their atonement. So if you don't see your need for Jesus to bring you to God, then he can be nothing to you. In chapter 12, verses 43 to 49, the focus in these verses is on who can and who can't observe the Passover. And you'll notice that the barrier isn't an ethnic one. You can come from anywhere and celebrate the Passover. It's not a traditional one. You don't have to have been raised in a a Passover-observing home in order to be joined into this festival. The only question is whether or not the person has joined themselves to the people of God. Now, they may have come as a foreigner or a sojourner or a worker or a stranger or whatever, but will they join themselves to the people of God? And the measure of that in the Old Covenant was circumcision. Verse 48 says, um, If a stranger shall sojourn with you, and we keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. Only those circumcised could partake. So there was a decision to make to remain as an outsider or to personally embrace this God and his promises. But there could be no fence sitting. You either had the covenant sign or you didn't. Well, circumcision has now been replaced with the new covenant sign of baptism. 
And we know that baptism itself doesn't save us. <clears throat> it just represents the spiritual reality of what's happened to us in Christ. But the sign of baptism is normative for the people of God. And this is why the Christian church has always insisted upon baptism before one shares in the Lord's Supper. And what we have in communion is like Passover. It's like a family meal. You have to belong to the family of God. And just like the Old Testament couldn't conceive of an uncircumcised male eating the Passover, so also the New Testament can't conceive of an unbaptized communion celebrant. So baptism is just what those who are in Christ choose to do to mark their entry into the family of God. The physical meal of Passover shows us that the spiritual reality of access to Christ is both open and it's limited. Open and limited. What do I mean by that? Well, salvation is available to all, right? You're invited. But it will only be partaken of by those who allow themselves to be marked and changed by it. Feasting on the lamb is not a casual come-if-you-feel-like-it sort of matter. Either you're all the way in or you're outside the blood-marked door. Can you imagine what it would have been like to grow up in an ancient Israeli household? You go out each year to select the perfect lamb. It might be a little bit like how we go out to select the perfect Christmas tree, uh, only instead of getting sap on your hands, you get blood on your hands. I mean, these kids are, I mean, seriously, it's, it's a gory business. They're holding the lamb still while their, their father whips out his knife and slits the throat. The blood splatters into the basin and also some onto the ground and I mean, that vivid picture of the penalty of sin, that would really stick with you all year long, don't you think? And it would, uh, I, I think also, though, a sense of exhilaration would stay with you all year long because you would, you would remember, graphically remember, that God had passed over, that God had kept his people safe through the blood of the Lamb. So that's a bit about Passover and its function for remembrance. And secondly, in chapter 13, verse 3, we see instructions for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Unleavened Bread commemorates liberation from slavery because it reminded them of their hasty departure from Egypt when they couldn't wait for their bread to rise. So every year, the people of Israel were meant to observe a festival for seven days, immediately following the Passover, and they would eat only bread that was unleavened. It's similar to the matzah bread that we use for communion each week. And then at the end of the seven days, there would be a sacred assembly, but really the, the main point of this holiday week was the total absence of leaven from the houses. You see that emphasized over and over. Any bit of dough that would have had natural yeast in it had to be purged from the house or else. And this actually developed into a yearly ceremony where Jewish households would take a candle and a broom and they'd all like march around the house looking for bits of leaven and the kids would really get into it, kind of like how we get into Easter egg hunts. Uh, only probably with a little more sobriety because there's actually something at stake. Back in chapter 12, verse 19, it said, If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Cut off probably meaning cast out, like exiled, excluded from the community, separated from the worship of God. And why would that be necessary? Why do we have this wacky tradition about purging leaven? Well, the shift from normal bread to unleavened bread 
It was a symbol of discontinuity. Remember, this people had lived in Egypt for 400 years, 400 years in the land of idolatry. I even forget what I said last week about how many gods the Egyptians had. It was in the hundreds. And how many objects of false worship do we have? See, they, they did, we learn later in the narrative that the Israelites did, unfortunately, carry some idolatrous and syncretistic practices with them. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread reminded them that all the Egyptian influences that might go with them, that might subtly work their way through the community, like yeast through dough, all that stuff needed to be left behind. So the cleansing of leaven symbolized quitting the land of Egypt spiritually as well as physically. One scholar puts it this way, God wanted, to, God, God wanted more than to get his people out of Egypt. He wanted to get Egypt out of his people. And we do see this imagery of leaven carried forward into the New Testament. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells his disciples, beware the leaven of the Pharisees which is hypocrisy. And if you remember when we were working our way through 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is dealing with a, a situation of sexual immorality in the church. And he says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So what he's doing there is he's saying Christ fulfilled the Passover. And so now this whole church age is, in a sense, the festival of unleavened bread. We live within those seven days. It's a time when sin must be diligently cleansed from our lives. And if we don't take that seriously then we'll show that we don't belong with the people of God. So this is exactly what Romans 8, 13 says, that if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So the threat in Exodus of being cut off, it actually wasn't that drastic. It was simply showing people what their harbored sin was doing to them. It was killing them slowly. And, you know, we do have a new covenant equivalent for this, this cutting off in response to the presence of leaven. It's called excommunication. If someone professes to be a Christian but keeps hiding their sin, keeps harboring their sin, keeps rejecting the help of their brothers and sisters in Christ to help them cleanse their lives of that sin, well, then Jesus himself instructed the church to treat that person as an outsider. And that's meant to be a mercy, to wake him or her up so they can face their true condition. Now, it would be wrong of me not to stop here and ask all of you, how are you doing with the search for leaven in your own house? Are you keeping some hidden because, well, it'll just be less fuss that way? Does the process of purification, of sanctification, does that seem tedious and unnecessary to you? Just, just you know, a little glancing at sexually suggestive images. Just one more drink when I've already had more than is good for anyone. Just a little slander and gossip. Just a little greed and using people, just a little deception 
or veiling of the truth, just a little anger or entertaining bitterness or envy. See, when we justify the way that feels natural, when we justify the the way that keeps us and not Christ as the keeper of the house, well, then we're inviting leaven, we're inviting spiritual cancer to spread out and make itself at home. So it's time to get out the candle and the broom to ask others for help and to pray to God for the Egypt to be taken out of you. Because he blesses us when we celebrate the festival in this way. We got Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the third observance we see detailed in this passage is the consecration of the firstborn. And we get a teaser of this in 13 verse 1, but then the fuller explanation is in verses 11 through 16. And the idea is that since Israel's firstborn were passed over because of the blood of the lamb, they were now holy to the Lord. They were somehow consecrated, set apart for him. And as far as the people are concerned, um, this is a start of a, it's a little complicated, but in the book of Numbers, we see that the Lord takes the tribe of Levi and he substitutes them for the firstborn. So here in Exodus, in this chapter, we see God saying, the firstborn from every house belongs to me. But then later in the book of Numbers, he says, and tally up the number of firstborns and then um, the tribe of Levi substitutes for them. And that's the sort of the start of the formation of the priesthood in Israel. Um, if that doesn't make sense, ask me more about it later. But this is the sort of the beginning of establishing priests in Israel. And firstborn animals were a different matter. They, were, they either had to be redeemed or they had to be killed. So paid for with money or killed. And this might sound strange to our culture, but the, there's a principle being vividly taught here. And that's that what's first and what's best belongs to God. What's first and what's best belongs to God. And just like the firstborn on the night of Passover, they were really placeholders that represented all the people of God. Remember we talked about that, how the people of God are, are called the assembly of the firstborn. So what was happening with just the firstborn in Exodus is showing us the reality for all the people of God. Well, we know that the same is true here. And in the New Covenant, it doesn't surprise us that we are called members of a royal priesthood. We are all called a people for his own possession. Those who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb are consecrated to him for service. So you have been bought with a price. You are not your own. You have been separated out to live for God alone. That's what the redemption of the firstborn shows us. So we've got the Passover meal, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and redemption of the firstborn. Let's just notice some commonalities to all three. First, these times of remembrance helped Israel to make, to make sure that they never forgot the nature of their faith, the nature of their faith, the point of it all. Because unlike every other ancient form of worship, this isn't about like somehow coaxing a deity to grant fertility to the people or to the land. This isn't about twisting a god's arm to get victory over neighboring countries. This isn't about avoiding the arbitrary anger of the gods by making sure you you give them their daily offerings. Uh, No, this God is different. This God, the true God, wants relationship. And he proved it powerfully by saving them 
in history in a way that promised also a fuller deliverance for the future in Christ. So the point being made here is that atonement by grace was at the center of everything. Remember, we've talked about that word atonement. What does it mean? At one meant. The process of us being reunited with God and how that's done as a free gift for us. That is the foundation. That is the center of everything. So these three things of remembrance were focused on helping them remember the nature of their faith. And if we make it about anything else, if we, we try to put anything else at the center, at the foundation of our faith, maybe we make it about self-help, or maybe we make it about just raising healthy families, or maybe we make it about social justice at the center. Anything like that is going to cause the Christian church to degenerate into a form of godliness without power. Just a do-gooders club, not really much different from what's available outside of Christ. And in that case... Jesus himself will remove our lampstand. He will cut us off from the people of God. So we have to remember that the gift of atonement from God is at the center of everything. Also, these three observances helped Israel to remember that salvation was already accomplished. It was already done. Back in chapter 12, verse 1, these practices in the month of Abib became the start of their year. They had a totally new calendar And so whenever they looked at the date, whenever they thought about what time of year it was, they would remember, oh, yeah, we have a new calendar because something happened to reset everything. And, you know, we have a new calendar, too. This is the year 2023 for a reason. Because Jesus accomplished our exodus in history, and the whole world has never been the same. Every time you write or say the year, you can remember the good news of Jesus Christ. That's kind of cool. And uh, these instructions for both unleavened bread and and redemption of the firstborn twice, uh, they're compared to a a sign or mark on one's hand or a memorial or frontlet between one's eyes. Do you see that? What is that all about? I totally get the reference to one's hand because I just, confession, I'm a hand writer from, from way back. I'll just, you know, items for grocery store or maybe someone's name that I, I just met or, oh yeah, email this person later. Um, so I get the hand, reminders on the hand. What about this frontlets thing? I was talking about it with Sarah and I was like, maybe it's like our, our equivalent is like a face tattoo. She thought that was a bit drastic, maybe more like a necklace. Um, <laughs> with your, your kids' initials or, or a cross or something like that. Um, but well, let's say face tattoo. If you had a face tattoo, you look in the mirror, you're certainly going to remember something, aren't you? Um, and every time you see other people staring at your forehead, you're going to remember what's there also. Anyway, these festivals were meant to function like that. A reminder on your hand, reminder right here in the most important places so that they would remember What? That the deliverance was finished. That by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And let's not forget that these observances were also given to help the people teach their children. So, you know, as wondrous as these events of the Exodus were, the grandchildren of that generation, they wouldn't remember any of it. They wouldn't have seen any of it. So the memories had to be preserved so that the covenant would be kept And that's why for all three observances, Passover in 1226, 
unleavened bread in 13 verse 8, and then redemption of the firstborn in 13 verse 14, there's a situation envisioned in which someone in a future generation is going to ask their parent, hey, why do we do this? And then the parent gives an explanation. And that explanation serves to help form the child spiritually and draw that new generation into the family of faith. And I just love this vision. I mean, it's just sound pedagogy, right? Because the best instruction of anything is not just simply rote instruction just drilled down on you, but rather it's knowledge that's passed along in response to honest curiosity. And it's a great motivation for us to, to consistently do life in our homes in a Christ-centered way and then simply and thoughtfully answer our kids' questions. But here's the thing. They're only going to ask those questions if we're really into it, if we are seriously doing this. Otherwise, they'll be like, well, that's just some ritual that my, my dad just does because he feels like he needs to do it. But if you're into it, they're going to want to know, like, what's this all about? If you don't have kids or, or if your kids are grown, let's frame the question a different way. How can you tell the story of your redemption to your grandkids or to neighbor kids or to church kids? Because what this shows us is that by our celebration and our remembrance, future generations are incorporated into the people of God. They will actually, in a sense, participate in events that they never witnessed. And then through that process, the Spirit can use those things to, to write the deliverance, their own deliverance story for that new generation. Well, we no longer live in the time of shadowy symbols. These specific rituals and festivals have been fulfilled and summed up for us in Christ. And the New Testament is clear that we're not required to keep holy days. We're not required to have special household practices like cleansing out leaven in order to be right with God. But the question remains, how will you remember your deliverance at the cross? How will you remember your need of Christ for holiness today? How will you remember that you've been bought at a price and therefore you are not your own? And there's a lot of freedom that we have here, I think, creative freedom. We all have different ways of remembering things, different ways of forming habits or instructing our kids. Maybe you want to have a spring cleaning time every year and, and a big party afterward, and this can remind you of the need to look for stubborn sin in your life and also to celebrate that Christ grants us the power to overcome it. Or maybe, I think we might do this in my house, um, you want to cook a lamb dinner once a year and have your family eat it with their coats and shoes on just to give the kids a, a memorable picture of how, like the ancient Israelites, you know, eating the Passover with their belts fastened and their sandals on, we too are being sustained by Christ while we eagerly wait for him to finally lead us home to our lasting place with him. Or maybe you'll grow in appreciation for some of the ancient church practices, such as the um, observation of Advent or Lent, if these practices can help you to meditate on Christ and hide his word in your heart, then don't be afraid to, to do that. Never use them as an end unto themselves, but use them as a means to grow your faith and to look to Christ, to remember. And of course, the most useful and the one required act of remembrance is the one that we're about to partake of in just a few minutes the Lord's Supper or communion, and it really wraps together the emphases of all three of these remembrances, from the Passover 
The fact that God has intervened on our behalf through the blood of Jesus. From the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the fact that we rely on Christ to put away the infection of sin from our lives. And then from the, the firstborn transactions, the fact that we were purchased for God and we are now devoted to him. So Pastor Tim Chester explains it this way. He says, Just as the Passover shaped the identity of the Israelites, so the Lord's Supper shapes our identity as Christians. We not only remember the story of the cross and resurrection, we enact it in the breaking of bread and the pouring of wine, and in this sense, we participate in it. It becomes our story and our identity, our living reality. And he says, imagine a slave with a cruel master, and then one day, a new man takes pity on him. He redeems him from his old cruel master at a high price. But a week later, the old master sees his former slave. He barks out commands as usual, and the slave's every instinct is to obey. But he's no longer under the control of the old master. He no longer needs to obey. He no longer should obey. He needs to remember to whom he now belongs. He needs to remember that day of liberation when his old life passed away and his new life began. Remembering that will change everything. This is what we do every time we take communion. It is our memory aid. It helps us to remember that in Christ we died to the reign of sin. Sin is no longer our master. We no longer obey its commands. Now we live as slaves to righteousness, a slavery that is true freedom. And in communion, we remember the day of liberation so that we live as God's children consecrated to him, end quote. So instead of three old covenant forms of remembrance, we hear Jesus say, do this in remembrance of me. Where do we focus our minds during communion? Are we just going through the motions? Are we just thinking it's a fairly mundane ritual? Because actually it's given to us as a dynamic time of remembrance and partaking of the finished work of Christ. So just as Israel kept remembering that blessed night before deliverance, so also we keep remembering. So parallels in Egypt, they were freed from the tyranny of Pharaoh, slavery in Egypt. We, on the other hand, are freed from the tyranny of Satan and slavery to sin. They went on their way out to the promised land. We go out from lives centered on this world, and we journey together to the city of God, the new heavens and new earth. They partook of the bread under the blood of the lamb. We eat of broken bread and drink of the cup that represents the blood of the final lamb. So it's like we're constituting ourselves all over again as people of the upper room, and we're sitting down with Jesus at his feast. And we do this with the realization that we're declaring his death until he comes. So it's, it is like the Passover in that sense. We are dressed in readiness to go wherever and whenever the Lord has for us. And we hope that his coming is soon.